Welcome to the Texas Conflict Coach radio program. If you have ever experienced or engaged in destructive or unresolved conflict, then you know it leads to broken relationships, distrust, and damaging results. Our program will help you manage and resolve conflict effectively with strategies, valuable resources, and support. I am your host, Patty Porter. My guest hosts, Dina Zametta and Stephen Kotev, along with our guest experts, will share our experiences, raise your awareness, and give you food for thought. We will share with you problem-solving strategies, no matter what your situation is, at work, with neighbors or friends, family, and as partners. Tune in or join in the conversation every Tuesday evening. Good evening, listeners, and Happy New Year. Tonight I have with me Dan Burstein, a mediator with a bipolar disorder and an expert in mental health communication. He will share insights to help you have empowering mental health conversations. Now, did you know that one in five adults each year copes with a diagnosable mental health problem? In our episode, How to Resolve Conflicts Involving Mental Health, Dan shares that even if our problems don't escalate to diagnosis, we all know what it's like to have a bad day, or bad days for that matter. How do we have effective communication when we're impacted by mental health issues or just trying to talk about these issues with others? So not only is Dan a mediator, but he is also a mental health first aid trainer, an awareness speaker for the National Alliance on Mental Health, and a Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance support group facilitator. He holds a master's degree in mental health and a certificate in health communication from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Now, we invite you listeners to engage with us in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. That's simply blogtalkradio.com forward slash Texas dash excuse me dash conflict dash coat I see that we have a couple of guests in our chat room now so we invite you to leave your comments and questions and we'll bring that into the program we're also on Twitter and we're using the hashtag uh, conflict chat at TX conflict coach is our hashtag or at Dan Burstein B-E-R-S-T-E-I-N and you can Twitter him as well Dan welcome to the program tonight thank you for kicking us off in the new year Happy New Year. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we are talking about a very important topic that we haven't actually addressed on the show in the almost eight years that we've been doing that. So I'm really glad that you brought that to my attention. I'm very familiar with your work uh, in our field, in dispute resolution field, so I'm glad that you want to educate the everyday person about that. Before we get in, delve too deeply into that, what inspired you as a mediator to do mental health communication? Well, for me, I actually found my way to mediation first from my personal experience living with a mental health problem. So when I was 19 and I was beginning my junior year of college, I had something called a manic episode, which is a period of very high energy, uh, similar or, or rather the opposite of depression. So I didn't sleep for several days and I wound up being hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And from then on, my life really changed and I was exposed to a very disempowering reality of what it's like to live with a mental health diagnosis. So I had been used to people treating me with a lot of respect with wherever wherever I went and um, really listening to my ideas. But right away from that hospitalization onward, 
I experienced a lot of people dismissing me because they knew that I had bipolar disorder and they thought perhaps I was symptomatic. Um, and this has been a trend that continues to this very day. And I, I got very frustrated because I was looking for ways to connect with the, the people who are important to me, like my parents and my friends and um, others in my life and work through conflicts with them. But unfortunately, the stigma and confusion surrounding my mental illness often got in the way. So that is what led me to explore ways to improve how people communicate about mental health. Um, another piece of that is there's a lot of difficult choices that someone has to make when they're living with a mental health problem. So for me, my parents are divorced. And when I was first hospitalized, they each found me a different mental health clinician, and I had to choose which one I was going to see. And one of them told me I could return to school in a semester. The other one told me it would take me a year. One of them wanted me to take more medication than the other. So right away I, I, I saw that there aren't these magic answers in mental health, but there's actually a lot of choices and choices that need to be discussed, choices that can lead to conflicts, and that's why I cared so much about um, mental health communication, figuring out ways to help people have those conversations. So rather than have me be the expert to say this is the medicine for this person, that's the medicine for that person, or um, you know, this, you, this person should go back to school in a semester and this person should wait a year, I wanted to help people talk about it and reach their own choices. And, mm. and, and when I finally discovered mediation, that's when I saw the, the, what I thought was the best way to have these kinds of conversations. So as you mentioned, I had tried facilitating support groups. I had tried being a speaker with the, excuse me, I had tried being a speaker with the National Alliance of Mental Illness. I tried being a trainer, um, teaching people things that they could do to help someone. But really the, the, the work of, of mediation and dispute resolution, um, the, the principles in there of self-determination and impartiality, those are the, what I consider to be the missing pieces of what was getting in the way of having those effective mental health conversations. Uh, yes, and you know what? Please do clarify, because not all listeners will understand the concept of self-determination. How would you word that for them? You can make your own choices. The choices are yours mm -hmm. to make, and we should respect people making their own choices rather than pushing a choice on someone that's not what they necessarily would have chosen for themselves. So often when someone has a mental illness, um, there, are, there are times where people might not be able to make their own decisions. They're rare. Um, but, sometimes, but what's more common than those situations is paternalism. There's a lot of paternalism in mental health where suddenly, um, you know, people think they know what's best for you and they start mm. making their own choices about what's good for you. So it would be instead of me choosing to go back to school in a semester or a year, my parents making that choice for me. That, that's not mm. self-determination. Self-determination is putting me in the driver's seat to decide mm. what kinds of medicine I, I, I want to take, which clinician I want to go to, what kinds of choices I want to make. Um, that's what self-determination is. You know, what a nice uh, organic marriage, if you will, between your experience, your your own personal experience with bipolar and, and going through the system and the stigmas and then finding your the way that you want to help others make these choices, putting them in the driver's seat, uh, you know, and helping them have communication around these effective choices. And so bringing in your now expertise, not only uh, in the areas of mental health, but also now your expertise in conflict resolution and mediation uh, is an incredible value to a lot of people who really struggle 
struggle with this area. Now, when we opened the program, um, it, we, we talked about how one in five people have a diagnosis, but I think sometimes terminology gets a little mixed up or people have uh, stereotypes or, or misperceptions or ideas about these terminologies. So can you clarify for our listeners, what is the distinction between mental health versus mental illness versus a mental health issue? Are they all one and the same? Are they different? Um, that's a great question. And I'll give you a quick answer, but I actually give full trainings just about terminologies and mental health because the truth is there's a lot of confusion when it comes to mental health and mental illness, and right away there's confusion because no one agrees about the, the language. But that statistic, that one in five statistic, is people who meet the criteria for a men- mental health problem, a diagnosable disorder listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, so there was an epidemiological study where they actually went and surveyed the American people and found that one in five United States adults, so people in the United States who are over 18, qualify for some kind of diagnosis, um, and, and, and they might use the term disorder or mental health problem. Now, what is mental health? Mental health, different people have different definitions. My definition is anything you do for your psychological well-being, for your thoughts, for your feelings, for your behaviors, all of that, all of that kind of stuff comes together. Um, mental illness is a colloquial term. So there's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You mentioned I did speaking with them, but um, truthfully, there's no one book that's going to be able to say what is or isn't a mental illness. That's going to be sometimes the policy of an organization will, will decide what they're going to classify as a mental illness or not. So it can be very complicated, but the, you know, the general idea when I'm talking about mental health is we all have mental health needs. We all have bad days, even if not all of our days and, or all of our bad days end in hospitalizations like mine have. And um, we can all relate to one another on the spectrum of mental health. And a lot of us have some kind of struggle, some kind of challenge related to mental health. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can phrase that. And it's really funny because, you know, before in the workplace, for example, you would take a sick day. You had to be sick to take a sick day. And now the the trend has been for a while now, I'm taking a mental health day, right? You know, because like you said, we all have a bad day. We all have bad days, but there is a spectrum, and everyone falls under this. As long as you're a human being, you fall under that spectrum of mental health and that we all have various mental health needs. Uh, and like you said, it could be addressing whether it's, you know, sitting and thinking and reflecting, whether it's acknowledging and working through emotions or making some behavioral changes, uh, everything from breathing and, de- you know, de-stressing. Uh, but mental illness uh, sounds like a very complex um, and, and can be very complex. And so the, the idea for tonight's show is really about just bringing a level of awareness of that. We won't get much deeper into that aspect of it. What we want to focus on is the communication piece of it. So let's talk about, because communication is so key to you as a mediator as well, what is mental health communication? Because I never really heard it in those terms before. So how would you talk about it? So when I say mental health communication, I mean really three key areas. The first is understanding that there are different points of view about mental health. There are different perspectives. There are different beliefs. 
different people are going to use different language. Different people are going to believe that different things are causing their problem. And different people are going to choose different treatments. So the first piece of mental health communication is understanding that there is difference that there, and, and learning a bit about what those differences might be so that way you're prepared to talk about. The mm-hmm. second piece is the actual language that you're going to use. So you're going to want to learn um, a bunch of different terminologies. There's different terms that people use, like you, use, like you said, for the word sick. So what, what kind of words are we using when someone's struggling with a mental health problem? What kinds of words are we using to describe someone who's living with a mental health problem? Um, what does all that language mean, and what are the best practices? Um, there's something called person-first language, where you, you wouldn't say Dan is bipolar. You would say Dan has bipolar disorder because you don't want to define someone by their um, diagnosis. Um, so all of that goes into the language piece. So we started with appreciating that there's all these different perspectives. Then we start understanding the language that comes into play. And finally, we get into the communication and conflict resolution skills that can actually help us to have conversations and work through different specific situations that come up um, that are related to um, mental health. So there's specific conflicts that come up that touch on mental health, and they're different in different areas. So it's different for a family versus a workplace, for instance. Okay, great. Okay. Now, let's just give an, an example, um, you know, when you're talking about mental health communication, because, for example, I like, for example, uh, you were talking about really understanding the language and terminologies. Is there any taboo language that people tend to throw out as an example? Um, so the first taboo that um, hopefully everyone can walk away from this program knowing is um, – don't say someone is bipolar or is schizophrenic. Um, say that they, are, they have that diagnosis or um, are living with that situation um, because people find it offensive to be defined as their illness. So some people still will, will not use what's, what's called person-first language, but that's one taboo. Another taboo, um, and again, it's relative, so it's not a taboo for everyone, is the word patient. So historically... Mm. Um, the word patient in, our, in the media has been linked to this idea of mental patient. So there's a lot of sensitivity in, um, in, in a lot of mental health communities around hearing that word patient to describe their experience because they don't want to feel those stigmas that are related to mental patients. So instead, there's other words that have become um, more popular. The, one of the most popular words now is peer. Um, but I don't want to turn this into a, a language lesson because I know we have limited time. Um, but, but those are the two big taboos I'll leave you with. You know, try not to say patient because a lot of people find it offensive and do use person-first language, meaning Dan is um, – I mean, Dan has bipolar disorder, not Dan is bipolar. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, uh, so that's a great uh, – those are two great, great tips there. So, listeners, you are tuned in to the Texas Conflict Coach radio program, and we invite you to follow us on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, tonight I am speaking with Dan Burstein. Uh, he is a mediator uh, and also someone that uh, has bipolar uh, disorder and has combined – uh, this interesting journey of his uh, to bring to the world, if you will, to everyday people how they can effectively communicate around mental health 
problems, mental health issues, and even on the mental health spectrum. Uh, and so Dan was just communicating with us the three primary things when he talks about mental health communication, which is understanding differences in our points of views, beliefs, perspectives. Uh, he just gave two examples of language and terminology, use person first language. Uh, and three, you know, how do we use more effective conflict resolution skills uh, to dig deeper to understand and to communicate needs, especially around uh, helping you put you in the driver's seat, especially if you're one who is dealing with a mental health problem. How do you make choices for yourself? And, and as a mediator, uh, Dan is very much into what he calls self-determination. So what are some of the typical, you know, you've, you've, you do a lot of training and educating, you also do mediations. Um, what are some typical conflicts you find involving mental health communication? Well, like I said, it's different for different contexts. So if we're looking at the family context, um, you know, one, one situation is there's a new change in the family dynamic because someone has had an experience like I did when I was 19 where they had an um, episode of some kind, a mental health change, and now everyone's trying to figure out how to sort that out. So there can be disagreements about what to do, and that might be the conflict. There can be challenges living together. And, and that might be the conflict where people are discussing how are they going to get along. If, if I, you know, from, with me, for example, I came home from school for a semester and I'm back in the house and we're all living together and working through my mental health treatment um, and we might need help in reaching an agreement about the rules of the house, so to speak, or the norms of the house. Um, there's just the idea of what are we going to tell people? You know, so for, for me, when I was home, um, you know, my, my family at first wanted to keep it a secret. And we had to decide who was going to know, what they were going to know, what our stories were going to be when, when we're not telling the truth because we're trying to keep the privacy and not have people stigmatize me. Um, and so that might be a communication plan. So these are all the kinds of conflicts a family might, might face. Um, and, of course, there's that one I just brought up earlier of two different clinicians, my, my mother and father who are divorced, each have a different referral. How do we decide which one we're going to go with? So lots of opportunities for conflicts to come up amongst families. And those are some examples of what I do with families. There's also um, examples I can give you from, let's say, working with a university. So very recently, I was meeting with, I was meeting with administrators at a university to talk about how they're going to handle it when a student exhibits challenging behaviors that may or may not be related to a mental health problem, and then they may or may not need to leave school. So how do you talk with fellow students about that? How do you talk with that student? How do you talk with the faculty? Um, what do you do in your communication so that way that student feels empowered when they are um, working to return to school as opposed to feeling like an outsider or helpless? Um, and a lot of the mental health communication skills are things like letting the person feel validated, helping frame it as their choice, um, help, helping make sure that they understand that there's an opportunity for them to connect with the school um, and that it's not that they are being pushed away. So, you know, those are, those are two settings and two examples of, of the types of issues that I might work with with people. And there's a, a whole slew of different niches that I've gotten involved in that are all about applying these conflict resolution skills and mental health communication skills to these tricky situations so people can have better communication and better outcomes. 
Absolutely. You know, it reminds me, uh, I was working with a university um, actually in the Texas area. We have, um, in San Antonio in particular, uh, we are known as Military City USA. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of servicemen who either retire uh, or they're out of the service, um, you know, honorable discharge, but they were injured, uh, it could be physical injury, it could be a mental health, um, you know, illness. Uh, and a lot of them uh, in this particular university, they dealt with a higher population of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, it is so unique to each person, uh, depending on what the trauma was for them, um, but there's such stigma attached uh, to PTSD, and a lot of times faculty uh, and staff didn't understand it. Uh, sometimes they were afraid of it uh, because, you know, maybe the behavior was odd or it was startling, and, uh, and so they became afraid, and so they would attach not only labels, but uh, they would, you know, they would very much react in a way that was causing a lot of conflict. So that, that was a really, you know, that's a unique uh, also opportunity um, to have conversations about mental health communications to break those stereotypes and to have an understanding that one person with PTSD can be completely different from somebody else who also has PTSD and not to also uh, cookie cutter them as well. Right. Um, that, it's very important to combat those stereotypes and, and people just have these general ideas of nervousness that they associate with a mental health diagnosis because they may have past experience uh, where they've dealt with challenging behavior that seem to be related to a mental health issue, or they might have just gotten these sensationalized ideas from the mediator. Uh, I'm the media, I'm sorry, the media. But um, I, actually, I'm giving a full-day training tomorrow about addressing challenging behaviors because um, I got into that line of work to for, for the very reason you said, to combat the stereotype where a lot of people, they don't know what they would do if somebody behaved in a challenging way. So if somebody threw something or if there was an outburst um, and, and they, there was no, there's no plan, people don't know what they're going to do in those situations. So instead they might profile and say, well, let's avoid the people we think might become explosive. And then they start treating someone with a diagnosis differently when the real problem is they don't have practices ready of what they're going to do for those challenging behaviors. And so um, that, that's something that I also do that's related to this mental health communication because we're trying to come up with these universal practices that help resolve what's making everybody nervous about people with uh, mental health histories. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, now, so I appreciate you sharing the example, the training that you're doing around challenging behaviors, and I want to come go back to something you said when you were first talking about your st uh, your own story about how stigmas would get in the way, and so there's these barriers uh, to good mental health, stigmas being one of them. We've been talking a little bit about some of the stigmas that got in your way, but also these cookie-cutter profile, oh, if, they're, if this person is PTSD or bipolar or schizophrenic, or psychotic or whatever people are putting labels on, whether they're a correct diagnosis or not, um, those stigmas get in the way uh, or barrier uh, of that. So anything more you want to say about those, those kinds of barriers that come up or even how you break those barriers? I think the, the best way to work against stigma is to develop principles that are hopefully going to combat stigma. And that's what conflict resolution is all about. When, when you learn conflict resolution, you're learning how to empower people to make their own choices, and you're learning how to treat them all the same. 
And, and that's what's so important um, when, when someone's living with a mental health stigma. They're worried that they're being treated differently because they have a mental illness. And, and I certainly experience that on a regular basis. Um, and nobody's perfect. You know, unfortunately, you know, people tend to make generalizations. And um, mental illnesses are real challenges. They're real deficits. So it's not, it's not like people um, would generally choose to have a mental illness. There's, there's really limitations that come with them. So it's understandable that stigmas could arise where people would say the preference is not to have a mental illness. If you could choose, you'd rather not have a mental illness. And so the, the way to work around that is to develop these principles that guide us, whether we are conflict resolution professionals or a, a layperson, um, focusing on treating people the same and empowering them to make their own choices and respecting their choices these are ways to get past the stigmas that are really everywhere when it comes to mental health. So stop making these generalizations, treat people the same, and really empower people. Just because someone has a, whether they're a diagnosable mental illness or not, the thing about it is, is we don't want to assume that they can't make decisions for themselves or that they're not capable or they're not smart enough or they're whatever the generalizations are. And I imagine that a lot of people, if they don't know, I wonder if oftentimes people really don't know the full story uh, for the person that they're engaging with. And, and when they don't know the full story, what would your recommendations for people to, to stop generalizing? What do they need to understand the full story? Well, in my trainings, I talk about how even the person who's living it doesn't know the full story. So I don't even mm-hmm. know my full story. Unfortunately, the science is very young, and all the mental health experts are debating what the full story is. There are psychiatrists who believe that there's overdiagnosis in America, and there's psychiatrists who believe that there's underdiagnosis in America. Um, it, when the psychiatrists get together at conferences, they debate who fits what diagnosis. They debate what system to use. So in, in all this confusion, the truth is we, n- nobody knows even their own full story. And mm. it's up to people to really make their own choices and for us to respect those choices, not to assume that there is a right answer for a situation. Um, you know, there's no right answer when it comes to mental health, but I believe there's a right way to treat one another while we talk about it. Mm. You know, you just said something that I know has come up in the workplace a lot, and that is, you know, especially when someone is known, let, let's use the bipolar. Bipolar is actually one that is has come up often in the workplace. And I remember supervisors, when I was uh, working in an employee assistance program and I was uh, doing conflict resolution, conflict coaching mediation work in the EAP, and I remember this case where uh, the woman had um, had bipolar, um, but it, it was, uh, it was, it was, now it was clear to me, she was my client. She was not taking her medication and that was her choice. And, uh, and that was fine. Um, yet the supervisor, uh, was really in a lot of conflict because she, she was making a lot of generalizations. Also a female was making a lot of generalizations about whether she was taking her medication or not taking her medication. And if she wasn't taking her medication, then there's all these stereotypes or assumptions about uh, you know, her making bad choices and things of that nature. So when you were saying, you know, the person needs to make their own choices and they need to respect their choices, and, and yet there is a fine line in terms of the supervisor expects a certain level of work 
uh, or expects, you know, a certain level of communication uh, or accepted behavior in the workplace, things of that nature. So sometimes that's a fine line, especially in the workplace. Family, I think there might be a little bit more uh, flexibility, but, uh, but and even in the university setting that you mentioned earlier. So that was coming up for yeah, me I think, saying that. I think you have to divide it between what the choices are and then what the behaviors are. So in a workplace situation, um, you know, it might be a mistake to judge whether or not someone's a good employee based on information you have about their mental health situation instead of looking at the actual behaviors that are happening at the workplace. Exactly, you know, and and I think you know, and, and there's a whole a whole a line of issues around the ADA around, uh, you know, if there's a disability and and how medication comes into play or doesn't come into play with that. We won't definitely go down that path right now, but I think going back to and just really, you know. Um, underscoring the mental health communication piece. I think there's a, a number of things that you've said here that have been important in terms of person-first language, uh, making sure that people are creating a communication plan, even if whether that's in the family, whether that's in a university setting between a student and faculty, um, you know, to come up with principles to break barriers, to combat these stereotypes. And part of it is re really asking good questions and really trying to listen uh, and respect uh, the choices uh, of the individual. Uh, are there other uh, techniques or, or skills or strategies in terms of how having an empowered conversation that you wanted well, to share. Well, a lot point. of what you said is, is what I teach. So mm -hmm. I, I believe an empowered conversation starts by validating someone else's point of view. So um, you don't have to agree with what they're choosing to do, but you, you say it's valid that they're allowed to have their own point of view and not that you're going to dismiss them and say what basically what you, know, what you think is nonsense. Um, so we want to start by validating points of view. We want to use our listening skills and, and ask open questions that are sincere to learn more um, about why this person is choosing the, the choices they're making. And then we want to separate their positions from their needs. So we, not just hearing what they're choosing, but we want to know why. Why are they making those choices? Um, and at, at the end of it, you know, you just want to make sure you're not labeling people or labeling situations and just asking these open questions to really understand, um, you know, their, their deeper story of, of what's going on. Well, and I want to clarify something about what you just said about, you know, being clear about someone's position from their need because not all listeners might be very clear about that. So oftentimes I might hear a family member, for that matter, somebody at the workplace, inappropriately, of course, um, say, you know, why aren't you taking your medication? They're angry. Take your medication. That would be a position. Why would that right. be a position, for example? So a position is just uh... – some specific um, choice or demand that, that you're making. So um, if we're in a conflict and I say what you need to do is take your medication, it's very specific and, it, and it's a very focused demand. And that, you know, me saying what I want is different than understanding the reason I want it. So why do I want you to take your medication? It might be because it makes me feel safer. Uh, it makes me feel safer to know that um, you're taking your medication. So what I really need is to feel safe. Um, the deeper need underlying me asking you to take the medication is that I need to feel safe. Or it might be that there's some kind of, um, you know, in some context, some kind of monitoring going on, and 
I don't know if the medication works or not, but I, I need to show that you're compliant. And so that's why I'm saying take your medication. I need to show that you're following um, a certain protocol that we all agreed on in some cases, um, in which case it's not about safety. It's just about showing that you're reliable and following what everyone agreed to. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different ways that you can go with that um, in terms of, of understanding what does it mean when someone's saying take your medication. Right. Or even I would imagine, listeners, too, that, you know, when you say to yourself, you know, why doesn't my husband take his medication? Why doesn't my child, you know, why is he refusing to X, Y, Z comply? It, it becomes this why are we, why are you asking for that? So ask yourself the why question and then communicate the why question. Because I think it's more what you're saying is instead of saying demanding take your medication, it really should be I want to feel safe. I want you to feel stable. I want you to have, I want you to be healthy. I want you to be happy. I want you to, and I know that by taking the medication that it seems to do this for you. You know, so it's really getting to communicating, understanding and communicating what those, as you said, underlying why, the underlying needs and and communicating that um, because I think the person on the other end would receive it a little differently than the demand. Right, right. Another, another, thought to build on what you're saying is you can have that conversation without ever bringing up the medication. You can have the conversation about what it is that's making me feel the need to ask about your medication and then ask the person to tell you what they need to do in order to answer your concern. So um, it doesn't need to include you jumping to the point of saying you need to take your medicine. Sometimes that person might come to the conclusion on their own. Mm. Uh, they, they might say, oh, you know what, I didn't realize that um, – my erratic schedule was making you uncomfortable. Um, What can I do to have a better schedule? And then you might have a conversation about that. And at some point they themselves might say, you know, I wonder if I change my medicine, if um, I'd be able to keep a better schedule. And they might come to the decision themselves that they want to use the medication as a tool to be more reliable with scheduling. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't have to do that. So I think the last thing as we start to go to our closing here is, you know, and and you've already mentioned this one a number of times, which is not labeling using uh, first-person language or person-first language. I think, uh, listeners, we've talked so much on this program over the years about really learning to be curious and asking questions in a way that's empowering, in a way that is respectful, uh, and not in, from an interrogation, but from a place of curiosity um, so that you are understanding and learning yourself and breaking away from these stereotypes and mis, uh, misunderstandings or stereotypes, breaking those barriers, as you mentioned. Um, you know, so I think just you know, keep going back to that, being curious and trying to understand. And, like, and I, I like what you said, too. People living it don't always know the whole story, so they might not always have the answers either. They're trying to figure it out at the same time time that you're trying to understand as well and and maybe that becomes I don't know an empowering partnership in some way but um, so before we go to our assignment for the week our listeners are very familiar with our uh, field work assignments out there any other last thoughts Dan that you want to share before we start going into that closing part um, I I think we could just go to the closing I, I know that um, I'm going to have a chance to give final thoughts then as well so. Okay, yes. Okay, no problem. So, um, so what is then your assignment for the week for the listeners? So my assignment for the week is 
to get to know a few different perspectives in mental health. If you visit my website and go to www.mhmediate.com slash voices, you can access an exercise that I use in some of my trainings to help people see that there are different vantage points in mental health. So you'll hear from people who um, believe very strongly in forced treatment for mental illness and people who believe very strongly in alternative approaches. You'll hear from um, people talking about the oppression that people living with mental illness have experienced, and you'll hear from family members who talk about the difficulty they face trying to take um, their reluctant loved one in for help. So uh, it's a number of different video clips. Uh, the password is voices. So you visit www.mhmediate.com voices and type in the password voices, all lowercase, and you can access that exercise. And if you have any thoughts about it, you can um, email me, uh, dan at mhmediate.com, and tell me what you thought of the exercise or any questions you had. Okay, great. And I'm glad that you gave him your contact information, dan at mhmediate.com. And uh, you also have a Dear Dan. Is that a Dear Dan column? Is that a Dear Dan podcast? Yeah. Tell us a little about Dear Dan. Um, well, I really love answering questions. So I always encourage people to email me and, and ask me questions. Again, dan at mhmediate.com. And I've recently started a podcast where I um, quickly answer some of the questions that I've received whether they were submitted to the podcast or just in the course of my trainings. And the podcast is called Dear Dan just because it's alliterative and it's me answering questions. Um, <laughs> but you can check out the podcast and ask questions at www.mhmediate.com slash Dear Dan. Um, and you can even record yourself asking the question to me. So there's a, a, you, don't have, you don't even have to type it in. You can hit a button and record yourself asking the question using your computer's microphone. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, that's a great resource. Uh, and we have that, listeners, all on the program page that we set up for Dan. They'll be around for a long time, not going anywhere. So if you didn't write all this down, um, we'll have that on the pro, uh, program page there. Now, you mentioned yes, you mentioned just a minute ago that tomorrow you're doing a full-day training. So tell us a, a little bit about these training programs. Are these open to the public? How do people find out about future dates? Um, so I do all sorts of different kinds of trainings, and you can um, learn more about what's coming up if you join my mailing list, which you can find the link uh, at www.mhmediate.com. The, the most relevant program for your listeners is probably my Become an Effective Mental Health Communicator program. The link for that is www.mhmediate.com mhc. That is an online-based program where people get 12 in-depth lessons all designed to uh, get them ready to communicate about specific agreements and mental health. Um, and it includes those lessons as well as opportunities to submit what they're working on for feedback. And um, I'm really excited about this program. So if anyone's interested, you can go to www.mhmediate.com slash mhc. Uh, you can't register at the moment, but you can put your email address in and you'll hear from you pretty soon in the next few days with uh, more information when it goes live. That's wonderful. Well, congratulations on that, Dan. And uh, and so, listeners, uh, thank you for joining us in the chat room and the Twitter feed today. And, Dan, thank you so much for kicking us off this year and also bringing a topic we haven't covered before uh, on our program. What final message do you want to leave with listeners? 
my final message is you should be confused about mental health because mental health is a very confusing <laughs> thing. And for most people, it's a very long journey to figure out what they're going to do to manage their mental health. And there usually aren't any quick fixes or clear right answers. So we need to see that that journey is a series of choices and we need to respect the choices that people are making because only then can we have truly empowered communication about mental health. All right. Thank you, Dan. Good night, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Texas Conflict Coach. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can find all of our podcasts archived to listen at your convenience at texasconflictcoach.com or download the podcast at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can also become a Facebook fan of Conflict Connections or Twitter me at TX Conflict Coach.